and welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. On our show today, we will be thinking outside the box with my guest Tom McKinney, who not only accompanies your afternoons on BBC Radio 3, but also leads a triple life, not only as a classical guitarist, but also as a concert organiser at Music in the Round in Sheffield and the curator of a contemporary music series at the Kettlesyard Museum in Cambridge. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. We will be thinking outside the box in more than one way. In the second half of the show, Tom and I will discuss the increasing trend for classical concerts that are stepping outside the standard shoebox concert hall and venturing into other spaces, including art galleries and on a very special occasion for Tom, the outdoors. Before Tom gets to reminisce, however, we will be exploring the ways in which contemporary performers and record labels are either reinventing the way they perform and present the established classical canon, or are reinventing and rejuvenating the classical canon itself. We begin with a composer who, trapped within the employ of Prince Esterhazy for many years, was, in his own words, forced to become original, Josef Haydn. The period instrument Chiaroscuro Quartet have reached Haydn's monumental Opus 76 quartets in their ongoing survey on BIS. Here is the opening from the finale of Opus 76 number 2, a quartet which reminds me of the great musicologist Hans Keller's possibly apophrical observation that everything Beethoven did was completely original, except that Haydn had done it first. Tom, while Haydn is, of course, standard repertoire, the Chiaroscuros certainly have a far-from-standard approach to the father of the string quartet. What features about their performance here stands out for you? Well, actually, Paul, I, I, I've seen the Chiaroscuro quartet perform quite a few times. And um, listen to this recording. I actually compared it to the one I know best, which is the Lindsay's recording of the Opus 76, the Lindsay quartet. And I also listened to the Tokash because I thought I'll go for two completely different quartets. Let's compare them. And um, actually, in terms of tempo and character that the Chiaroscuro Quartet are striving for, it's really not at all radical, actually. It's very, very, it's a a standard Haydn interpretation. Um, That finale that we heard just now is almost identical in time length and character to how the Tokash Quartet played, for example. But what's really different, completely different, and which is going to really alienate listeners as well from this style of playing is that this willingness, this bravery to make ugly sounds, you know, it doesn't, it's not, there's, there's, a, there's a style of quartet playing which is all about full-bodied, rich sounds. And the Chiaroscuro Quartet, they're not the only ones doing it. I mean, there's Radio 3 New Generation Artists, the Consone Quartet, who are also very similar to the Chiaroscuros in that they play gut strung instruments, period bows, which are just a lighter and sort of smaller amounts of hair. And, and what that does is it gives this, granular scratching sound sometimes, which really, I, I suspect still in conservatoires, is an absolute no-no. It's probably forbidden. Probably very few teachers willing to allow that sound. Someone like Alina Ibrahimova, however, she studied with... Actually, the um, Pablo, the second violinist in the quartet, both studied with Gordon Nikolic, the former leader of the LSO, who was someone who was all about maximum amounts of character. You know, and to sometimes, for sometimes... To, to make music which is so beautiful, sometimes you have to kind of frame it with ugliness. And actually, just this, this reminded me, this quick tangent here, that Julian Breen died the other week. The, the, as, far, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest guitarist of them all. And he was someone who was absolutely willing and brave to make the ugliest, nastiest of sounds sometimes in order to kind of create this slipway into music which suddenly sounds a hell of a lot more beautiful because it's just been preceded by this really kind of ugly, 
brash tones that he could produce. And another example, now a bit more related, violin playing, was Isabel Faust's recording of the Frank Sonata, who also did something similar, you know, playing on gut-strung instruments with uh, Alexander Melnikov on a forte piano. And there was moments in that where she dropped down to such pianissimo that you hear the scrape of the string. You know, you lose that full-bodied richness that violinists kind of always aspire to. When you've got four players doing it, like the Chiaroscuro Quartet, it brings about a lightness of texture, which allows you all the time to hear four instruments. Now, actually, there are moments, it's not all pros, this, there's cons involved as well. Sometimes I really wanted rich, full-bodied sounds. However, the pros, for me, massively outweigh the cons. I love this style of playing because I love the willingness to drop down to those tempos, to, sorry, those um, dynamics, which are so faint, you know, where, where they're willing to just let the string just scrape, you know. That, I love that granular sound. Uh, it's taken me time to get used to it, but now I absolutely love it, and I, I love this style of playing that they have. Yes, I agree. It is a style of playing that perhaps does take a time to get used to, but once you've really engaged with it, you can really see, as you've said, how, how it's a completely fresh approach uh, to pieces which you know we all think we know incredibly well. And they've obviously really thought about, well, what does playing on period instruments mean for what we can do with the performance? It's not just, oh, we'll just play on period instruments for the sake of it. They've taken that as a fundamental aspect of their playing and then built the performances and the interpretations on that. Uh, that's, that's true. And another thing you talk about the issue of performance. I mean, you know, let, let's let's think about what it's live like to hear this music live as well. What you tend to find with string quartet recordings is that the, in the engineering process and, and the sort of recording itself, in particular with the editing after, there's a sense of trying to make a string quartet sound bigger than it is. And when I compared side by side, it was absolutely crystal clear how that works, actually. Maybe it's just more of traditional recording technique. When I compared the recordings of the Lindsay's playing these Haydn quartets with the Chiaroscuro quartet, the Lindsay's are made to sound like they're in a huge kind of reverberant acoustic with this sound which is bigger. I mean, regardless of who the quartet is, they can't match the sounds that you get in these recordings when you hear them live. And the Chiaroscuro, this, this recording by the Chiaroscuro Quartet, it feels to me like you're hearing them in a more realistic live situation. The sound is thinner. It's not as rich. Now, there isn't time to go into this, and probably Rob Cowan would be far better to talk about something like this than me. Should the listening experience at home be completely different to the listening experience in a concert hall? That's you know, Let's not debate that right now. There's not time. However, for me, what I loved was that I know how the Chiaroscuro Quartet sound live. I've seen them sitting two metres away in the Crucible studio in Sheffield. I've seen them sitting right at the back of a hall in the Upper Chapel in Sheffield. You know, two venues in Sheffield. I've heard them in... And they don't... You know, they don't sound massively full-bodied and rich. They do have a thin, lighter sound, which comes across in this recording. So I find it very accurate, a really, really accurate uh, representation of who they are live as well. Fantastic. Yeah, well, we now move on from the height of Viennese classicism to Vienna on the verge of a cataclysm. A new collection from Alpha Classics called Vienne 1900 presents a portrait of Fonda Secular Vienna featuring not only music from the second Viennese school, but also Korngold, Mahler, and perhaps most interestingly, Alexander von Zemlinsky, a composer who could be viewed as the missing link between the romantic sound world of Brahms, who greatly appreciated the clarinet trio recorded here, and, as he was a teacher of Schoenberg, the expressionist world of the second Viennese school. Here's an excerpt from the Andante second movement of Zemlinsky's clarinet trio, followed by the second of Berg's four pieces for clarinet and piano, Opus 5. Thank you. 
So that was Paul Meyer on clarinet, Eric Lesage on piano, and in the Zemlinsky, Zvivplesser on cello. Tom, this set gives an overview of a time and place rather than a composer or a particular style, helping to place the second Viennese school in context. When you're curating music concerts and programmes, how important is providing this context when presenting music that still might be perceived as difficult by many audiences? Yeah, um, well, you just mentioned second Viennese school. I must tell you that um, I went to Vienna uh, in 2016 to make some programmes for Radio 3 about um, Berg. Schoenberg and Weben. And I went to the Arnold Schoenberg Center and I met Mr. Schoenberg expert himself, Dr. Hartmut Kronus, who you know, is nothing he doesn't know about Schoenberg. And I mentioned, I used the phrase second Viennese school and he shot me down immediately. And he said, no, 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 only one Viennese school. Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert were not a school. Anyway, <laughs> he was not. It, Ooh, dear. That's how the interview started. Thankfully, it went uphill from there. <laughs> But he was not happy with that phrase. Uh, no, I, I, we all know exactly what that means, though. You know, the second Viennese school. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, this disc it really surprised me because when I, I didn't know of it actually until you mentioned it, I didn't know if this had come out, which is bizarre because looking at the list of performers on, I mean, this is a superstar list of players. Um, I hadn't even heard of it about it coming out. And I think that's because the repertoire is so, the names of the people on the disc are so off putting to people still to this day. Um, I mean, if it's, Korngold, if it's not the violin concerto or film music, it doesn't really stand a chance of... Not, not even the string quartets, which are gorgeous, I know will put people off. People won't go to concerts if the Korngold string quartets are programmed. Um, Schoenberg, Berg, if Weben's mentioned, even only as someone who's arranged something, I mean, they are, you know, wow, that's like the pox has been cast upon a concert. You know, how to, how to kill an audience size, you know, put some Schoenberg in. It's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy because... As far as I'm concerned, you know, Schoenberg is the greatest misunderstood composer of all. Um, topic entirely in itself there. We could talk about, I could talk about for three hours about Schoenberg being misunderstood. Um, but what I actually, there's two ways of listening to this disc. You can listen to it as the individual pieces. And I suspect there's probably very few, if any, recordings of these pieces as good as the ones on this disc. You know, I mean, it really is a top end group of players. So, yeah, you can listen to it in terms of individual pieces or you can actually listen to it from start to finish almost as a concept album in which it's telling a story. And because in basic terms, what happens is we, we start at Korngold and then we go through Temlinski and we've got Emmanuel Pau's arrangements of Mahler, which he's arranged a couple of songs, orchestral songs. He's arranged them for uh, flute and piano. Then we've got Berg, Schoenberg. That's where we end up. And in the most basic terms, this disc basically gets increasingly chromatic. And it gets rhythmically more fragmented. And I guess overall, in terms of thinking about musical expressionism, which Schoenberg was associated with and Berg, I guess it gets darker in character as you progress through the album. Now, that's actually highly contrived, the way that this is put together, because chronologically, the music in this disc doesn't work like that. You know, some were written after each other, but, you know, the Korngold's placed there and the Zemlinsky's placed there to tell a story, which isn't entirely true. It's that teleological approach to music history something happened which led to something else happening which led to something else you know someone put a chromatic note in a cadence then someone put two notes in a chromatic cadence and then three and it got increased you know and that's not the way music history works and it's in a very old-fashioned way of teaching music history actually uh, that's, hopefully that's completely outlawed now in universities and conservatoires however you know it does tell a story if you listen to it from start to finish i found it quite entertaining the way it does it and it does get increasingly more chromatic and when you get to those actually the the berg piano sonata that's the transitional piece for me on this disc because that's where you get taken from the way this disc is contrived that kind of i mean they use this phrase in the publicity material um, a disc that encapsulates both the exhaustion of a bygone romantic age and the avant-garde promises of a modern world still to be built and that's what the beg piano sonata does at that point in the disc because the zemlinsky that we've just had it's just brahms 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 it's one of the greatest brahms forgeries i've ever heard i mean it's a fantastic rip-off of brahms um brilliantly well written but it's completely unoriginal and you realize that that late romanticism had completely run out of ideas and in the beg sonata through that, it gets increasingly chromatic and you come out then into the Berg clarinet pieces, which are an entirely new world of music. Fantastic playing, fantastic music. And yeah, at that point, we've got this, as the publicity material says, you know, the avant-garde promises of a modern world still to be built. 
And like you said, it is music which people still find difficult. It still has real edge. I mean, you listen to those Berg clarinet pieces, and then when you go into the, the Schoenberg pieces as well, the two arrangements that Weben made of those. And it is still to this day, not it's not shocking, I wouldn't use that word, but it, it's still got the potential to leave you a bit lost as to where you are with this music, you know, how you listen to it. And it's not, I mean, this basic approach to the early start of the 20th century, which was that Schoenberg revolutionized pitch and Stravinsky revolutionized rhythm. Well, actually, rhythm and pulse in those composers, which we're going to call the second Viennese school, you know, Schoenberg, Berg and Weben, rhythm and pulse, it's just as radical what they did with that as they did with pitch. I mean, this kind of blocks of texture which just stop dead moments of and silence becomes so important you know silence is just as important to kind of be a bit of musical material as the musical material itself sense of presence and this idea of you know it loses its kind of momentum all the time it's brilliant music but it's very difficult to listen to still to, if you're expecting a pulse you know and something that's going to constantly propel you forward you can't listen to it in that way you have to listen in a different way and those arrangements actually by Weber, is there an arrangement by Schoenberg of one of his own pieces on there as well, I think? One of the, yeah. They, they were done for the Society of Private Musical Performances, which Schoenberg set up, um, which was where they took all sorts of pieces, you know, they took Strauss waltzes, they took, I think there was even music by Ravel put in there that they, they, and they arranged huge orchestral works, for example, as well, down to small scale chamber works. Again, greatly misunderstood as to what Schoenberg was doing because it wasn't all, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy expressionism. There's an amazing arrangement that Schoenberg made of Funiculi Funicular. Um, absolutely brilliant arrangement of that. It's hilarious. And Schoenberg loved Schrammel music. I don't know if you know this thing, the, the Schrammel brothers in Vienna at the turn of the 20th century. They kind of they were a huge sensation. Basically, it's it's kind of beer tent umpire music. Schoenberg loved it. And that kind of character of Schoenberg is not represented at all on this disc. It's again about, you know, Schoenberg is the man who smashed everything up and was the great modernist, which he was. But he was also, you know, he was someone that loved all types of music. It's it's, it's not fair to, to kind of position Schoenberg as the kind of the great kind of iconoclast. He was an amazing original, but at the same time, you know, he, he, his biggest love of all was probably Brahms. And that's what this disc really tries to, for me, it tries to force something that isn't true. And that is that, you know, you had Korngold and Zemlinsky and Mahler who were writing kind of pleasant tonal music. And they had Berg and Schoenberg that wrote this nasty, ugly music. And that that's not really the way it worked at all. But like I say, you can listen to it that way from start to finish, or you can take the individual pieces and you'll struggle to find better recordings of them. Well, if that disc represented or attempted to represent a microcosm of Vienna 120 years ago, a new disc on Delphian represents a microcosm of contemporary British composition. Here we are, from the Hermes experiment, an ensemble with an unusual name and an even more unusual lineup of soprano, clarinet, double bass and harp, has been rightly lauded for their ability to represent a wide variety of contemporary styles, from the folky linden tree from Misha, Misha Mullerova Abado to the dark impressionism of Between the War and You by Josephine Stevenson, while at the same time retaining the group's quirky individuality without. Here is the melancholic Uh-huh, Yeah by Oliver Leith. So that was Eloise Werner on soprano, Oliver Pashley, clarinet, Marianne Schofield, double bass, and Anne Denholm on harp. Tom, I think you're just as much a fan of this release as I am. Would you like to pick a particular highlight? 
Yeah, I'm going to go for an exact opposite to what you've chosen because um, that's what I love about this disc. It's, there's no real stylistic bias. Um, I love it. You've got all sorts of, you've got an absolute, as you said, a microcosm of what new music is. Um, so many different styles. I've gone for something completely different, a much more traditional setting of what you might call a, a song. It's a it's a poem set to music. It tells a story. Uh, you could imagine Benjamin Britten would have written something like this if he'd been asked to write by the Hermes Experiment. This is Gun, Gun, Gun by Erilyn Wallen. Equally impressive as the performances on this disc is the fact that the Hermes Experiment are such an unusual collection of musicians, they have had to commission all the pieces on this disc. Can you give us a brief guide to the process of commissioning new music and the importance of new commissions, both on a large and small scale? Well, I mean, I've been involved as a commissioner kind of in, from both sides because from an administrative position, you know, I've commissioned music uh, and I've also been involved in it. As a musician, you know, I've I've performed lots of lots of new music, so I've been on the process from both sides, and I've put in lots of premieres, and I've I've organised arrangements, you know, I've arranged performances of new music as well. And what I can say is that before you get fully into the process of bringing about a new piece of music, you know, regardless of the size of the piece, regardless of what it's been written for, regardless of the reputation of the composer, what I can tell you, Paul, is that in advance you never know how smoothly or how rough that process is going to be. It will always take you by surprise. And you know, it can be really slick. Now, it can be a really easy, simple operation. No stress, great communication. Everything goes to plan. Peace delivered on time. Musicians love it. Premier's great. It can also be sleepless nights, missed deadlines, funding falling through, difficult personalities to deal with, you know, a lot of egos along the way, a battle between what the composer wants to do, what the performers want to play, what the... Um, commissioner or the venue is expecting, you know, that can sometimes cause huge trouble. It can involve difficult people. I include me in that. You know, I can be very difficult in these situations sometimes. I can be very awkward and annoying, and I know I can. Um, everybody just wants to to get the best. That's that's what it is. Everyone's striving to get the best thing, and sometimes that works and the relationships are great. Sometimes it can be awful. However, what I can say is that regardless of how easy or how difficult it's been, it's never a waste of time. Never, ever a waste of time. Even if, you know, that the end result is a piece of music that you're not necessarily all that happy with, at least you've you've created something, at least you've given the opportunity for a composer to bring something new and for performers to have a chance at playing something which has never been heard before and give an audience the opportunity to hear something that's never been heard before. There's, there's nothing, I, I can't see any negatives in this, even if the piece isn't a masterpiece. Not you know, They never are, you know, because that's the nature of, that's the nature of new work. It's, it's not you know, it's, the historical filter. It's not for us to determine yeah, whether I mean, the they're masterpieces or not, in a way. It's for future generations totally, to determine absolutely. that, isn't it? Yeah. The historical filter of quality will you know, sieve out all the junk 100 years from now. Yeah. They're not always going to be masterpieces. A lot of them are garbage. Um, most are mediocre. Some are spectacular. Um, but it's always worthwhile. And this this is the fact. I mean, if you don't have new music and if you don't support composers... If that's not right at the heart of everything we're thinking about all the time, what I mean, classical music is what? It's just a, it's been said before, but it just becomes a museum, you know, a, a dusty old museum of artifacts. Um, it loses its freshness. And I think in particular at the moment, composers have got to be commissioned right now because, I mean, everything in the arts, everything in music is completely, uh, you know, it's a total mess. And composers need support and um, they need that kind of, that glimmer of hope that, you know, things are going to get back to normal. So what's heartening, actually, is that lots of organisations 
regardless, you know, I mean, what their size are and regardless of their kind of financial difficulties they find themselves in at the moment, what I'm hearing from colleagues and other organizations is that people aren't kind of kind of putting up the the battlements and only programming traditional repertoire. They're actually thinking more creatively and thinking like, you know, when we come out of this, how can we reinvent ourselves perhaps and how can we look at music in a fresh way, not just copy what we did before? I find that really heartening. Whether that transpires with the realities of kind of how this stuff is all financed, I don't know. But there's absolute willing at the moment to to really support new projects and new com- new music and to help composers out. You wouldn't dare say perhaps there's a correlation between the difficulty of getting a piece commissioned and performed and the quality of it. Uh, sometimes pieces can be very hard to get going and don't amount to much or vice versa. Some things can be an absolute breeze and turn into a great piece. Um, well... I mean, some of the greatest composers <laughs> are also some of the most difficult people to deal with. Um, I mean, I've I've interviewed kind of some very, very big name composers, composers I admire hugely, and left thinking, wow, you know, you should never meet your heroes. <laughs> um, no names no names mentioned. They can be very difficult people, but it, I think that it's about striving for the best it can be. You know, and in that process of striving for the best something can be. Other people get in the way, you know. When, you know, unless you're Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and say, I'm going to write a piece for four helicopters. <laughs> the, real, the reality is very different. You know, I mean, you know, I, I've had to, you know, I was involved with something a couple of years ago where somebody wanted to write a piece which had been commissioned for an acoustic group of players who wanted to bring an enormous amount of electronics. And, you know, the, the idea that, this composer had was fantastic, but it wasn't right for this situation that we, and it couldn't have been done properly. And there's this enormous battle with the composer to try and get this person to come around to thinking realistically. And that was really stressful because, and actually it's a shame because me, I didn't know what the piece was going to be. I didn't fully understand what he was going to do. I wouldn't have known until I finally heard it, but I had to put these restrictions on him and, that that was that was really hard and it was it was painful for everybody involved and you know it it turned out that the piece was really good um but yeah you've got someone like me in my position as when i'm you know in a position as administrator who comes across as somebody really annoying and gets in the way and i see why composers can often fall out with administrators and hate administrators in fact but you know those are the realities you have to deal with and it's hard it's really hard and and you have to all the time re, you know respect the composer's wishes um and yeah, if, unless you're Stockhausen, <laughs> the reality is that there are restrictions. Yeah. Well, I think anybody who is interested in contemporary British competition should check this uh, release out if they haven't done so already. Uh, Eloise Werner's uh, remarkable vocal stylings on the album are a constant source of wonder. Uh, but unlike our next artist, she hasn't quite abandoned working with conventional instruments altogether. Tom, could you give us an introduction to the soprano Juliet Fraser's unique artistry and use of the human voice? Yeah, I mean, I've known Juliet for quite a long time. I, the, when I first got to know her, she was mainly known for um, singing with Exaudi, the um, vocal group that she founded uh, quite a few years ago now with um, James Weeks. That's how I got to know her. But since then, her reputation has just gone way out of Exaudi and as a soloist, and now her reputation spread way out of this country as well. I mean, she's the she's the go-to soprano for so many composers. Rebecca Saunders, um, one of the big-name composers right now, um, Loves working with Juliet, loves writing for Juliet's voice. Um, and I think, I mean, the, the the thing about this disc that she's just brought out, which we're going to hear an extract from, um, spilled out from Tangles. Um, the, the thing about all the music on this disc is it's about pure sounds. It's about exploring simple material. Um, composers kind of enjoying simple sounds, just sonority, and exploring what a great musician can do with the simplest of musical material. It's not about like loads of notes and it's not about complexity. It's about, it's about simplicity. And I think that, I don't know why composers love doing this, but it's been there right from the start. Composers love to push performers into areas of real extreme technical challenge. I don't know why they do, but they just love doing that. However, the biggest kick a composer gets is when they push a performer into new areas, but actually the composer comes back and makes it sound effortless and you don't hear the mechanics and the process of what's going on. Um, 
And it's remarkable on this disc that, I mean, it is so staggeringly difficult to perform this this music. To just, just to get the, the pitch accuracy is, is so hard. And yet Juliet makes it sound like the easiest thing in the world. It makes it sound like she's almost improvising, and she really isn't. Um, it, it's, her technique is so good. Like the purity of her sound, the accuracy of her pitch I just mentioned. She, she's, com- she's able to completely hide the mechanics involved in the process of making these sounds just allows the music to speak for itself without having to ever struggle to make any of it work and when you see her live i mean her presence her stillness that she has you know you zone in on the voice it's totally captivating mesmerizing you know almost hypnotic the way she sings and she's completely committed to new music you know getting it new music written for her to perform she works closely with composers i just mentioned rebecca saunders another composer that she's working with is fantastic canadian composer cassandra miller um two different stages of careers there cassandra miller and rebecca saunders but she's working with them both with you know really up close getting pieces written for her she is a major major figure in new music and rightly so because it's a very very special voice and uh, could you introduce the excerpt that you've got uh, from her new album Yes, well, I, a bit of a disclaimer here. I was involved in this, in the making of this album slightly, uh, in that the second piece by C. Van Elder on the disc, I, I um, helped to commission through working at Kettle's Yard because this, des- this disc should have been premiered in full. Juliet was going to sing it in a concert at Kettle's Yard, but obviously the pandemic ruined all of that, obviously. It will happen at some point, hopefully. But I've chosen a different piece by um, Australian composer who's now based in London, um, Lisa Illion, and this is A Through Grown Earth it's for voice and pre-recorded electronics. That's what the whole whole disc is. Uh, and there are texts in there by Jared Manley Hopkins. And the idea of a through-grown earth, it's about patterns and shapes in the natural world and how they can be replicated in sound. I found remarkable about this piece and this album in general is that uh, while electronics are often used to sort of describe urban or contemporary landscapes, here they're used to describe the relationship between humanity and the natural world incredibly effectively. You know, new music isn't just about, you know, urban cerebral complexity. What happened, I think, in, in contemporary music was it was so dominated by the thinking of people like Boulez that was all about complexity and a focus on composers like Elliot Carter. I don't know, I don't know why I've singled him out. I love music, the music of Elliot Carter, but he typifies a kind of cerebral, extreme complexity, urban, professorial kind of music written in universities and institutions. And that you know, and the other the other types of music. I'm thinking. I mean, a brilliant example is John Luther Adams. Um, not John Adams, John Luther Adams, who was always writing music about the natural world, but has only emerged into a kind of a figure recently because. That dominance of cerebral thinking in music has, has now dissipated. And we've now got got all sorts of music which are allowed to flourish because we haven't got those kind of so much those stylistic camps anymore. We haven't got, you know, you're either with Boulez or you're with the New York minimalist minimalists. That doesn't really exist anymore. Kind of and actually going back to the disc by the Hermes experiment is another good example of it all goes, you know, it can all go on a disc. The only thing that matters is is it good music written by good composers? That's literally all that matters. Yes, I think the predominant uh, style these days I would call anything goesism, <laughs> which used to be called postmodernism, Paul. But I prefer your anything goesism. <laughs> I think it's much better. <laughs> so that Juliet Fraser, their album is on Huddersfield Contemporary Records, and another Yorkshire town providing a platform for contemporary music is Sheffield, a city which Tom knows well and is home to another Tombra Records. Tom, what's the ethos behind Another Tombra? And could you give us an introduction to the label and pick out a couple of highlights from their recent releases to share with us? 
Yeah, so um, Simon Raynell, who runs the label, uh, lives in Sheffield. His background, I mean, he is a professional sound recordist, but um, I think he's done most of his work on documentary films. Um, I don't know what the ethos is behind the label, but I, I, I guess what Simon likes to do is he likes to find things for himself that nobody else has really heard of. Um, and then bring them onto his recordings, and then they, they have a tendency to become quite popular after Simon finds them. I've seen this with a few things. I guess there's a bit of an emphasis on putting out recordings of music that's grown out of the American experimental tradition. For example, he works with um, he works a lot with Apartment House, the group Apartment House. They specialise in that kind of repertoire. He likes to focus on improvised music. Recent project, and I'll tell you some of the discs that he's brought out recently. Um, he did a long series of music of uh, Canadian music. Um, which introduced a lot of composers that were kind of very peripheral names over here. They're getting a lot of performances now, I think largely because of Simon championing them. Composers like Magnus Granberg, Frank Denyer, Cassandra Miller. These were these have suddenly become like really trendy for new music groupies. But I think Simon kind of got there first. He's really good at finding these people and that, that, that kind of zeitgeist programming that he has. The latest disc he's just brought out is um, Oliver Leith's. A uh, huge piece for piano and percussion, which is called "Good Day, Good Day, Bad Day, Bad Day." Um, that's the latest, another timbre release. Um, so, yeah, championing composers at both ends of the scale because he's also um, championed composers associated with this thing called Vandalweiser, composers like Antoine Boyga and Jörg Frey, who are very well-established composers. Uh, so, he's, you know, he's bringing music from all ends of the spectrum onto the label. Um, and I suppose. God, spoke about this earlier about simplicity in music and um, I mentioned Elliot Carter as typifying complexity I want to qualify that I love Carter's music by the way but <laughs> I don't want anyone you know dissing Elliot Carter um, but yeah the, the music that I think Simon really loves is that is that where it's, it's focusing on sonority and simple ideas and where the quality of the musicians always shine through as well you know what can the musicians do with simple material as opposed to dealing with you know extreme complexity i think you've titled this podcast out of the box uh so i've got two out of the box recordings for another timbre i've actually selected the two most atypical discs that simon Raynell has ever released it's a recording of messian's quartet for the end of time and a box set of morton feldman's piano music um why i'm not entirely sure it actually fits with the theme of this program today because the messian is if you like a type of alternative performance practice quartet for the end of time is probably one of the only standard pieces of repertoire from a composer associated with modernism if you like i mean messian's music early on isn't anything like his music post-war post-second world war quartet for the end of time was written as everyone knows during the second world war it's still kind of in a way is it's his old style of of writing the style that he wrote um, from kind of 1930s. Um, and I suppose in terms of Messiaen, it's quite easy listening, the quartet for the end of time. And as a result, it's become pretty much standard repertoire. You know, it's programmed all the time by lots of different groups. Simon knew the piece well. And you can go to the website and, and read an interview with all the players involved. And Simon introduces this interview on, on his website by saying that he heard a performance which was kind of so overly expressive that he felt that it was spoiling the music. And what he wanted was to have a performance that stripped away those kind of overly gestural types of interpretation. He wanted a performance in which kind of the music was allowed to speak for itself. What I will tell you now is that this is not going to be to everyone's liking. Um, going right back to that, the start of this podcast when we're talking about the Chiaroscuro Quartet, there are pros and cons with, with this type of playing because what Simon asked the players to do not just that he didn't ask of them it was it was a it was a consultation between everyone involved but was to kind of scrap vibrato or excessive vibrato and have an emphasis on clarity and detail now what that does is two things it it can sometimes make the sound far too thin and brittle and as a result um, because you haven't got these very melded sounds like you expect from other performances, I found some of it quite hesitant and quite overly cautious. Um, it lacked that kind of spontane spontaneity and kind of flair that would have been put into it had the players gone for kind of more full-bodied playing. However, there were moments in it, I thought, which are the best I've heard. In particular, 
um, I thought it was the fifth movement, um, praise to the eternity of Jesus, the, the really well-known cello and piano solo, um, where you've got, um, I mean, the pianist is Philip Thomas, the cellist um, is Anton Lukashevich. And for me, when I started listening to this at first, I thought, oh, no, I, this isn't for me. Gradually, I thought, oh, wow, actually, this is this is extraordinary because all the musicality is coming from the right hand. You know, there's no vibrato in the left hand. There's nowhere to hide. And what you realise is that it's extremely difficult to play, to kind of pitch it correctly. And what a standard type of playing would do is they would go for those kind of big jumps, big changes in pitch, and they would put an enormous vibrato wobble on to kind of coax themselves onto the pitch gradually. Not with Anton. You know, he hits those pitches dead on and it's so exposed. And actually it goes from being something incredibly emotional and over the top to being something very delicate and fragile. Total reinterpretation of what that movement is all about. I absolutely loved it. I, I, and I, I, I don't think I've heard it played better, that movement, precisely because it was just a totally different character, which, you know, I mean, the, the title is Praise to the Eternity of Jesus. You know, it should have a sense of kind of prayer to it. It should have a sense of kind of serenity to that movement. It's not a big kind of virtuosic cello solo, which lots of cellists turn it into. Yeah, I'm like with you, Tom. I, I approach this with some apprehension after hearing many uh, rem wonderful, uh, very expressive, romantic uh, interpretations of this uh, piece. But there is a real stark beauty to this, isn't there? And although I do miss the more sort of perhaps romantic vibrato approach, uh, especially in this movement, it does reinforce the idea of this piece that although we often talk about the conception performance of premiere of this piece, but that sometimes gets lost when actually performing it. It was written in very stark, uncompromising circumstances. And this is perhaps a stark, uncompromising performance. Totally. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and I think that, for example, in, in the first movement, um, there's detail in this now that I that I'd not really heard before. The extent of those glissandi on the cello that you hear in the first movement, I've never heard it done to such extremes like that before. Because it's it's so clear, it's that clarity of parts. Um, it is, yeah, the stark thing. So, so what that does is in the first movement, when you hear that glissandi, it gives it this kind of very unsettling feel. You know, you, you feel as though you're in a world which isn't entirely comfortable to be in because of this. The, all you hear all of this, these individual parts now so clearly. The details there, it does transform the character of the piece and it transforms what it means. Um, I mean, whether the uh, there's some debate now about the, the the truth behind Messiaen's story about how this piece was composed and conceived, but it is still remarkable. I mean, it's, a, it's absolutely remarkable circumstances in which it was written, and it's a remarkable piece. Just, I would like to say one thing though. We're going to be talking about Messiaen in a minute, and that is that if your only knowledge of Messiaen is those three pieces, um, Van Rigard, Quartet for the End of Time, and Tarangalila. You've not heard proper Mession, I'd just like to say. And we can talk about that later. <laughs> well, the Quartet for the End of Time, it's a remarkable piece. And, and this is a remarkable performance. Um, I'd say pros and cons, but I, I would recommend anyone getting hold of this and having a listen. Yeah, yeah it, it's well worth checking out if you think you know the Quartet for the End of Time, but want to have your preconceptions about the piece challenged, perhaps. Totally. Yeah, and, and isn't that not a good thing? A piece that's so, so you become so accustomed to. Is it not good from time to time to kind of have a slap in the face? Because that's what that's what this will be for some people in a very good way. Absolutely. And and what else have we got from another tombra? Well, 
it's a it's music by a dead composer, which Simon doesn't particularly specialise in. Um, this is the Feldman, kind of much lauded, amazing reviews, um, the Feldman box set. Uh, Philip Thomas playing Feldman's piano music. It's not quite a complete collection, apparently. Um, if you were to get everything, you'd go on forever because there's all sorts of things that turn up in documentary films and there was kind of incidental music that he wrote. But it's as close as to complete as, as Simon and Philip Thomas were satisfied with. Um, Feldman is perhaps, in a way, the most important composer, I think, to younger composers today. Uh, he seems to have come into his own now. Uh, he was always well known. I mean, I'm not saying that he was neglected during his lifetime. That's that's not true at all. But he was overshadowed by other composers of his generation. Nowadays, I think he's absolutely at the forefront. Uh, people really get what he was trying to do in a way that they didn't at the time when he was writing it. Maybe some people did, but the majority of people just didn't get it. Simplicity, repetition, all of it done to extremes. You know, often using very, very faint dynamics, music that unfolds over enormously long periods of time. Why does that make what? What's so special about that? Why, why is it so? Why is it so good? Why? Why is it so important? And I think what it is is that it allows you to to hear music properly. And I, I remember going to something I'll never forget. Going to see the second string quartet performed at Tate Modern. You know, it's a six and a half hour piece, and um, your your whole way of listening is about trying to pick out the most simple of things you know, because you've got sometimes you know a two note phrase which is repeated I don't know seventeen times or something and then going something completely different it might suddenly be a a rising major third or it might be you know, a dissonant semitone that comes out of nowhere and for you in that moment it is the biggest musical thing that's ever happened you know it's proper shivers down the spine and. I think that so much beauty gets lost in overly complex music. Um, and in a way, overly complex music, you listen to in a more simple way because it becomes a wash of sound. And you can you can sort of zone out when something's too complex. But in, in Feldman, the most simple of ideas take on the most profound musical importance. I absolutely love it. Um, as, as I think everyone does. And I have no very few people who don't like Feldman, you know, regardless of whether they have a dislike towards modern music, whatever that is. But they'll tend to like Feldman. Um, because you know textural beauty and an emphasis on sonority and the, the kind of the basics of sound, and the piece I've chosen as an extract is Palais de Marie. Um, to, the, the title is to do with a Babylonian, the Babylonian Palace of Marie. It was all to do with Feldman's interest in Middle Eastern carpets, the patterns on them, the kind of the way that it all looks the same from a distance, but up close, no square centimetre is the same as the next square centimetre, and yet step back two metres from it and it all kind of looks just the same. That's what Feldman was all about. I once heard a brilliant description of Feldman's music by um, composer Bryn Harrison, which was, it's like looking at a waterfall in that it always looks the same, and yet when you look close, it never looks the same. That's, a, I think, a fantastic description of Feldman's music. And Philip Thomas playing these pieces. I mean, they were recorded over a long period of time. Like he recorded it over maybe 18 months or something, the whole process. The stamina required to, to pull this off is extraordinary, you know, physical and mental. And his precision is remarkable. And they're just presented clean. You know, they're, they're just presented as clean and as accurately as possible. And the music just speaks for itself. I think it's a... Yeah, an incredibly important set of discs, this. Well, it might be somewhat invidious to play just an extract of Morton Feldman, but nonetheless, here is an extract from Palais de Marie uh, by Morton Feldman and played by Philip Thomas.
You were talking there about uh, Morton Feldman's music be like looking at a waterfall. But to me, it's very strongly connected uh, to the works of artists like Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman. Now, of course, uh, Feldman wrote Rothko Chapel uh, for the art installation in Texas, which houses some of Mark Rothko's uh, paintings. And then I feel there's a wonderful synergy uh, between the two. It's perhaps it's to, to be immersed in um, rather than thought about. But if when, in, when immersing yourself in it, as you said, the very simple changes just take on a huge significance in the same way that a blue streak uh, in a Barnett Newman can take on a huge, huge importance within the within the frame of the painting. That, that's right. I mean, I mean, when we talk about minimalism um, in music, it's just always associated with those New York minimalists, you know, Reich and Glass, John Adams. But this is true musical minimalism in the way that um, visual art minimalism was. Um, you mentioned some artists. When I uh, I presented a series of things about Morton Feldman on Radio 3, and I went down to Tate Modern when there was the Robert Rauschenberg exhibition on, an incredible exhibition that was on maybe four or five years ago, and I spoke to one of the curators at Tate Modern who'd put this together, and we came to the conclusion that, because Feldman knew Rauschenberg as well, Feldman knew all of those artists, the conclusion that what Rauschenberg did was very similar to what Feldman did. I mean, Rauschenberg would take objects off the street, he'd take junk and he'd stick it on the wall, um, in a way that that's what Feldman did with music. You take something so simple and elevate it into the profound. You take the commonplace, like Morton Feldman will take a major third and turn it into the most extraordinary piece of musical material because it's been preceded by 45 minutes of kind of crazy, kind of like kind of loose ideas for 45 minutes. And then you get a focus from a major third and it's suddenly like, wow, a major third is the greatest thing ever. And the way that Rauschenberg did. So the, the, the links with the visual art with Morton Feldman are, are so, so important. Okay, well, there we go. And uh, we're talking earlier there about the Quartet for the End of Time, famously premiered inside the walls of a POW camp. But in 2016, a Messian performance that Tom McKinney was fortunate to attend had a much more al fresco feel. As an introduction to this remarkable event, uh, here is Pierre-Laurent Aymar playing an excerpt from Messian's Catalogue de Oiseaux. Tom, what made Pierre-Laurent Aymar's performance of Messiaen's Catalogue du Oiseau at Aldborough in 2016 so remarkable and special for you in particular? Uh, well, where do we begin? I, I, yeah, I've never seen anything even approaching that. It turned out actually it wasn't the first time he did it. He'd, he'd actually done it before somewhere in, I think, Switzerland. He'd done this idea. So what, what he did, the idea is that he breaks up the 13 sections of Catalogue du Oiseau into four parts. And it began... At sunrise, um, at the back of um, the uh, Maltins Hall at Snape, in the cafe restaurant area on two floors. Um, Amar was on the bottom floor, and I think they could fit, I think, 400 audience members in, I think, who were sitting on slightly angled chairs looking out the back windows so that the sun came up directly behind Iken Church on the hill at the back. Thankfully, the weather was perfect, and the sun came up as. Amar was playing the parts of Catalogue de Oiseau, which are written at sunrise. So that was the idea. It was themed throughout the day that the music would fit um, the time of day and the place where it was put. So it started at sunrise with the sunrise pieces. Because I don't know whether you whether you know or whether listeners to this will know, but the annotations on Catalogue de Oiseau are so detailed. Messian tells the performer every moment what's happening. You know, he is in a field. There are these flowers there. These flowers are this colour. This bird begins to sing. It sounds like this. There is river running to the side. It is this time of day. The sun is doing this in the sky. He tells the performers everything that's going on all the time. So Amar was able to construct this story throughout the day using Catalogue de Oiseau. He, he didn't play it in the order from of the third. He didn't. He totally chopped the order up and put different things together. So the first one was at, at dawn at the back of Maltin's concert hall. 
The second one was the music of the midday heat. So it was the music that was uh, that Messiaen wrote about, mainly about birds around the Mediterranean coast, actually, that kind of intense midday heat. And so it was in the Britain studio and they opened up the, you can slide the back wall across to let the sunlight in. So you had this glaring kind of midday sun coming in deliberately in the audience's eyes. You know, they closed those windows at the back to, to block the light out. But this was, you know, d- direct sunlight. You couldn't really see Amor that well. Um and then the most remarkable part of the day was outside at Minsmere RSPB Reserve, which was on a wooden stage, um, amplified. And there was a hell of a lot of people. I mean, I, I don't know, guess what, five, six hundred people in the field listening to Olivier Messiaen, you know, out in the open. And it was you know, it was approaching eight o'clock, I think, when it started. I think you think this was an eight o'clock performance. And um, the birds were just out there singing with Amar playing, you know, on this stage. Uh, I think he played three parts of... Catalogue de Wazo there, about an hour-long concert maybe. No, about a 45-minute-long concert. So that was part three. And then it ended back in the Britain studio, pitch black, lights out, and the audience were being brought in to sit on beanbags by the stewards with torchlight. It was completely dark. And then they closed the doors and left the audience in the dark for what seemed like forever. It was probably only about a minute maybe. But it, you know, sitting there in pitch black, and the audience really didn't know what was happening. And then suddenly, a spotlight came on the piano in the centre of the room, and Amar jumped up off the floor onto the uh, piano stool. And what no one realised, because they were being brought in the dark, was that Amar was there all along, crouching underneath the piano. He was actually under the keyboard, and he leapt out. And you heard, it was recorded on Radio 3, and I've listened back to it. You can hear this audible intake of breath of shock as he comes up off the seat and he crashes straight into the, into Schwetulot, into the Tornial. Um, And and at the end of it, because I mean, I'd been presenting the whole day on Radio 3 and we started, you know, we we started the broadcast at 4am and we finished at half past midnight the next day. And it was a combination of kind of exhaustion and just like this sheer emotional content of the day. I ended up in tears. It's the only time music's ever... Withdrawn me. I've never ended up in tears before, and it was partly because of the event of the day. But as I was trying to back announce this final concert, I was I was choked up, but it was ridiculous. I just thought it's never going to get better than this. I'm never going to be at a concert which is better than this. It was just utterly extraordinary. And that's of course you have a long-standing interest outside of music for ornithology. I do indeed. Uh, maybe there's a podcast we can make a future about my failed attempts to become an ornithologist as a teenager <laughs> and how I ended up in music. <laughs> Ah, fantastic. Well, that performance was part of an increasing trend of concert promoters thinking outside the box of the traditional concert hall. Although, in itself, this is perhaps not as radical as you may think. Uh, Myra Hess famously gave piano recitals in the National Gallery uh, to raise morale during the Blitz. Um, What are the problems and some of the benefits of taking concerts outside of the concert hall? Well, that's it ridiculous thing to say but the, the most important thing to keep in mind is are you doing the music the justice it deserves whenever you do anything like this and you know with the with the concert we just with those concerts we've just been talking about amar playing catalogue de Oiseau, it made perfect sense it wasn't just for the novelty value you know the idea of having the birds singing along with the the piano playing bird song is is a, a brilliant thing which enhances the audience experience um i mean some of the things I, I've been involved in programming quite a few things and playing in quite a few th- events which have been in unusual spaces. And again, you know, so long as it, it's right for the music, you, you can't go wrong with it, actually. Um, just thinking about, I mean, I, how I got to know you, Paul, was at the Crucible Studio in Sheffield, far from conventional performance space. I mean, acoustically, not great. It's almost like being in a bull ring at times, you know, where the audience towers above in the round above the, the musicians. But it's about character, isn't it? And it's about, is the music being communicated effectively and in the best possible way it can to the audience? And in the Crucible Studio, the answer is yes, it is, you know, regardless of all the acoustic problems. It is, and because it has fantastic sight lines as well, you know, you can see the, the musicians so well. So, yeah, that, that's what you always have to come back to. Is it doing the music justice? Um, the, there are many, many cons with it. Uh, I mean, one is acoustics, which you just mentioned. Audience comfort can be a real issue. You know, if you ask an audience to come to a concert, which is happening more and more, kind of concerts put on in bars, pubs, nightclubs, can the audience sit down? You know, because if they can't, it's difficult to stand for an hour 
you know, it's very difficult. <laughs> people get annoyed. Uh, so audience comfort. And, you know, people expect certain things from a concert hall that they don't get in alternative venues. They expect a bar, for example, as well, and they expect toilets. And that's not always there as well in these places. But, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, you can't go wrong so long as it's enhancing the kind of audience experience. Yeah, is there not perhaps a bit of a concern that it might relegate the music, it becomes secondary to the event, uh, to the novelty factor? You know, I didn't go to hear a particular piece. I went to see a concert in a particular space. And does that sort of do the music a bit of a disservice in the end? Yeah, I mean, that, that yeah, you get a mismatch that sometimes, I've, you know, I don't want to pick on particular events and people, but it has, it has gone catastrophically wrong sometimes, and I've been to things which have been dreadful. Um, but, I mean, some music is all about spectacle. Some music is all about, you know, theatricality. So putting it into a dramatic, quirky venue, yeah, I mean, maybe the music does become slightly secondary, but it can enhance the audience experience, which I was talking about. I, I, I saw something amazing, actually, which took me by surprise, which was I saw uh, Roderick Williams and... Chris Glenn performing Vinterizer at Yellow Arch Studios. You probably know that, Paul in Sheffield, to the north of the city recording studios. And they've got like a, an old storage room there as well. It's quite, it's quite big. It was part of a warehouse, I think, at one time. It's one of the best recitals I've ever seen. It was Chris Glenn playing on this out-of-tune upright piano with the audience sitting on these rickety chairs around them. And it was just fantastic because it stripped, the, it made the music so stark because it was basically just these bare walls, you know, with plaster falling off the walls and really rough and ready place, really a bit tatty. It was freezing cold. It was February when everyone was shivering, um, you know, but in terms of like audience interaction, communication, intimacy, all of those negatives were, were kind of forget about them because the transmission of the music was so effective in this space. Specifically uh, with regards to concerts in art galleries, uh, which again you've been involved in, does the art need to complement the music, e.g. Baroque music at the National Gallery, contemporary music at MoMA, etc., etc.? Or would actually a contrast be more interesting? We often go to concerts where you, know, you hear a piece of classical era music and then a piece of romantic era music. Could you do the same with uh, concerts uh, in art galleries? Well, I, I yeah, I, I played a... An all contemporary program once in in Tatton Hall, uh, with lots of seventeenth and eighteenth century art around me. Um, I'm not sure how it went down. <laughs> sure, it was the most <laughs> fabulously received concert I've ever done. Um, ah, I'm trying to think about this because I mean, I guess if the audience arrives early and comes to soak up the art, you know, and then that that exposure to, to what's on the walls and, and what's displayed then complements the music which follows. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. That sounds brilliant. You know, why not constantly think of this? You know, why not? Why do we have to think of, you know, musical experiences being profound and kind of things that are going to make us better? Why can't we just have things which are actually just entertaining sometimes? And if it does that, then, then, then yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, the issue with art galleries actually is... Um, they seem, in theory, like a great place to put concerts on. They rarely are, actually, in my experience, uh, because they are incredibly reverberant. Uh, the echo can sometimes really, really spoil um, the performances. And it's often difficult to lock kind of the audience into a space. You often get lots of extra noise, unless you actually have a, you know, an event where it's sealed off. You often get things that happen in art galleries, though, where... The audience is still allowed to kind of look at the artwork on the walls and it can be distracting and too much noise. And you don't realise just how noisy art galleries are until you put a concert on. <laughs> and you just hear the noise coming from elsewhere. And the, it might be two rooms along, two exhibition rooms along, and you hear like footsteps. And it's the loudest thing in the world that you've ever heard. So, yeah, again, it's it's choosing the right repertoire for the place. I just when you mentioned art galleries just now, the first thing that came to mind actually was just because I've been reading about it recently was um, early Philip Glass Ensemble. Um, they used to play exclusively in galleries um, because they wanted a, a blank sort of white box space because everything was so heavily amplified. Those pieces like music in 12 parts and so on, everything was so heavily amplified. Um, that you come to a point actually where, in particular with electroacoustic music, where you're using amplified instruments, where concert halls really fall flat. Um, I went to the Elbe Philharmonie in Hamburg last year. I was playing there with Birmingham Contemporary Music Group, and I did a concert there. And 
During an interval, I was talking to one of the sound engineers and he said it was the worst job he'd ever had. Very, very experienced sound wow. engineer because it is impossible to balance amplified instruments in there. It's designed entirely for acoustic instruments. And concert halls are rarely the best space for electroacoustic music. Just going back to, to venues and problems, Paul, I mean, because it's on my mind a lot at the moment, the proms. I mean, everyone goes on and on about the Albert Hall, what a, what a dreadful place it is to listen to music. I just don't, I don't hear that when I go because the event, you know, the process of going to the, what that means to go to the proms and the audience excitement, is it, there's a buzz like nowhere else. Um, and those things, I, 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 I know that there are quite a few performers who believe that acoustics are overrated uh, and that it's all about, you know, I mean, bad acoustics, there's no such thing. There's only bad musicians. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know whether I agree entirely with that, but um, I know where they're coming from. You know, you, you create the atmosphere by, you know, who the musicians are, what the repertoire is how the musicians communicate to the audience and how the audience behaves. An amazing place, to contrast the Albert Hall, is Cafe Otto um, in London, uh, just sort of close to Shoreditch. Um, and that's one of the top experimental music venues now. It has experimental music on every night, or at least it did until the pandemic came along. And the audience in there is amazingly self-regulating. You know, it is a, it is a boisterous, loud, let's go out for a drink bar. But as soon as the lights go down and the musicians come on, it's silent and it's self-regulating. Um, the audience take care of themselves. You don't need to be told to be quiet. There's no stewards going around shushing you and stuff. Everyone goes quiet because they're there for the same reason as that you know, everyone is there to experience great music, as happens at the Albert Hall. So, and again, Cafe Otto is an, an acoustically dreadful place. The Albert Hall is an acoustically <laughs> dreadful place. They are two spectacular places to oh, listen okay. to classical music. Well, thank you very much. You've certainly whetted our appetite for a return to normal concert going as soon as possible. Uh, thank you very much, Tom McKinney, for your expertise and uh, insight. Uh, thank you very much to my producer, Matt Groom, and thank you very much to you for listening. Mm-hmm.